Sometimes it's moments of brokenness which create the greatest transformations. Times where fear gives birth to faith, pain leads to healing, and chaos dissolves into peace. It's in these times we often see God more clearly. For in our deepest turmoil, He remains faithful. When our spirit is crushed, He remains strong. When our moment is too heavy, He carries the burden. As gold is refined by fire, we too are often refined by struggle. It's part of growing, changing, becoming. Lately, the journey has been difficult. Our breath has been labored. Our steps uneasy. But we stand in faith, knowing who is leading us through this desert. The God of peace, the God of hope, the God of restoration. Let's get into some judgment. <clears throat> Actually, did someone say yay? Yeah, awesome. <clears throat> Thank you for that. That's part of my goal today, and it's a simple goal, and it's to help you to fall in love with the judgment of God. And that seems like um, maybe an onerous task, but I hope it's a profitable one for you. And if you can't quite get there, in fact, some of you are maybe way too in love with the judgment of God. You might need to rein that back a little bit. But if I can't convince you to fall in love with the judgment of God, at least I would love for you to have confidence in the judgment of God. And if you're not quite at a spot where you can gain confidence in the judgment of God, at the very least, I would like us to see that the judgment of God is necessary and actually gives us hope. And that brings us to the book of Joel, because Joel starts out with a scene of judgment and has a heavy emphasis on the day of the Lord, this time of judgment. But I think we avoid this topic. When we come to talk about God, and we've been doing this a lot, we've been talking about God's love, and rightly so. Love one another. That's the basic fundamental principle that we're called to. Love God, love others. That's the sum of the whole law. And so rightly so, we talk a lot about love. And we'll keep talking about it because we need to grow in our love for one another and for God. But sometimes we avoid the topics of judgment. And I'm not sure that we can fully understand what love looks like unless we also understand God's just judgment and looking into that as well. But I think we avoid it because we have a lot of misconceptions. When I say God is a judge, I don't know what comes to mind. For some people, it's an old guy with a shotgun saying, get off my lawn, or something like that. It's some, it's some image that isn't very endearing to our minds and to our thoughts. I think sometimes when we say the judgment of God, we think of God as being vengeful or even being bloodthirsty. And when sometimes we go through the Old Testament and we read some of these passages, it's easy for us to get a misunderstanding of what's happening. And we can come with a wrong conclusion about what the judgment of God is all about. And so I think we have to work a little harder to overcome that. 
One of the ways we can overcome that is by understanding that a lot of the Old Testament uh, imagery about the judgment of God and the desire for the judgment of God to come is descriptive from people who are facing oppression. And that makes it hard for us to enter into because for the most part here, we are not an oppressed people. But for those people who are facing oppression or are facing injustice, their cry out is for justice. God, move, move with justice. And sometimes that justice gets confused for vengeance. And we see that with David a lot in the Psalms, right? When he calls out, he doesn't just want God to come and set things right. He wants God to destroy his enemies. And sometimes we mistake uh, David's uh, desires for God's action. Because God often surprises us, surprises us when he does come in judgment. Remember the story of Jonah? And Jonah, he just wanted judgment on those people in Nineveh, and he was hoping that they would all be destroyed. And what does God do? They repent, and God forgives them. And it's so much easier for us to want our enemies to be destroyed rather than to be saved. And so we tend to think of judgment in one way. It becomes very vindictive. It becomes very vengeful. But the judgment of God in the end often surprises us. And that's something we have to hold on to as we go through uh, this sermon and this whole series. Because otherwise, if we come to a wrong conclusion about the judgment of God, we will forever be afraid of God. And that's not the goal. I loved my dad. I was always a little nervous of him. And that was built into the whole system if you grew up in this kind of family. Wait till your father gets home. Did you ever hear that when you were a kid? <laughs> I won't tell you the number of times I heard that. Wait till your father gets home, which is unfortunate because then it built up my father to be this kind of boogeyman. And he really wasn't. Well, sometimes, but no, he really wasn't. Uh, but sometimes we can do that with God. You know, wait till God comes and then you're all in trouble. And so we have to be really careful as we go through this talk of judgment and to see what image we have of God as a result of that. The end result, I don't want you to be afraid of God. I want you to have confidence in God. Okay, so that brings us to Joel, this little book uh, in the Old Testament, and is called a minor prophet for a reason. Not because the message is less than the major prophets like Isaiah, but it's called a minor prophet. Why? because it's short. And that's the kind of books I love. And so that's why we do the short books in the Bible. That's why I married Christine. So the short books, she's not here today, so she'll never watch this. I'm just gonna take a drink before I go on. So Joel's a short book. Honestly, go home and read it, read it through. It's a poetic book. It'll disturb you a little bit. But there's some verses in there that I'm pretty sure you already know. Verses like, rend your hearts and not your garments. Or verses like, the Lord will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Or verses like Matt uh, alluded to today, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy, right? And Peter picks that up at Pentecost. And one of the reasons we're looking at Joel now is because Joel will lead us to Pentecost Sunday. And that's what we're kind of leaning into it. Well, we don't know much about Joel. 
Some of the other prophets give us a context. They talk about a particular king they serve under. They give us background that they were a shepherd or they were in the court. Joel gives us almost nothing about who he was and when he prophesied. His name, though, is interesting. It's a mashup of two names of God, Yahweh and Elohim, Joel, uh, is, is his name. And so it translates kind of to the Lord is God. And in the midst of all that's going on in this prophecy, that's what we hold on to, that the Lord is God. And he has a number of key themes that we're going to look at over the next four Sundays, starting with this one, the day of the Lord. Joel mentions that specifically five times. But Joel does an interesting thing. He quotes from the other prophets. Not too many prophets do that. But he's obviously immersed in the other prophetic writings, like we should be, right? And so he quotes from these other prophetic works. And in those other works, the day of the Lord is mentioned at least 13 times. But it's not just an Old Testament phrase. It actually comes right into the New Testament. And even after Jesus, the day of the Lord is mentioned again. And so that's why I think we need to pay attention to this. Because if we're going to understand what God is calling us to do and how God is calling us to behave, we need to grasp and grapple with the day of the Lord and to understand what it means. Well, if I was to define it, I mean, as soon as I mentioned day of the Lord, I know some of you are going right to apocalyptic end times. Like you're there already. You're in Revelation. Just back it up a little bit uh, because we need, there's a big gap between Joel and Revelation and we need to see how the day of the Lord plays out. Because there isn't just one day of the Lord. There's a number of times throughout scripture that are mentioned as being a kind of day of the Lord a visitation from God. And so this is how I would simply define it. It is a time when God shows up to set things right. That's a day of the Lord. And it's the day of the Lord in the ultimate sense when we do get to Revelation, but it's the day of the Lord multiple times throughout Scripture. It's a day when God shows up to set things right. And there's mixed emotions around the day of the Lord when you read the language going through Scripture and going through Joel. There's the emotions of dread because of judgment. But there's also the emotions of rejoicing because of salvation. And the day of the Lord does that for us. It brings judgment that leads to salvation. And every time we talk about the day of the Lord, we have to talk about it in the sense that God is warning us so that we can repent and be restored and rejoice in our salvation. That's the whole point. He's not saying, hey, this is going to be an inevitable consequence no matter what you do, you know, whether it's Israel or whether it's us today or whether it's the nations. There's opportunity and patience and mercy and time to repent and be restored before the coming day of the Lord. But that's the sense. It's this mixed emotion. How many people here have been for surgery in hospital. Have anybody? Yeah, I know a lot of you have. Um, I remember the first major surgery I had was on my knee. I'd had a, a skiing accident uh, when I was about 17 years old at Last Mountain. If anybody knows that mountain in the Okanagan Valley near West Bank, and uh, me and my buddy were skiing down. We thought we would get creative, and I decided to ski in between his legs. And as I got down there and we were racing down the hill, 
we got stuck and tumbled and wiped out completely. I had to be uh, carried down in a special stretcher. And after that, my knee just never really worked again properly. Well, my dad said, you're fine. You're fine, just suck it up, buttercup, and uh, keep going until this massive lump uh, emerged from the side of my knee because it hurt all the time. And it's this massive calcium deposit that got super pointy. And so when he touched my knee, it was like a needle from the inside pointing back out. And I finally convinced my dad that something had to happen. And I remember the day of surgery, I felt such dread, like they're about to do something to my body that you shouldn't do. They, they cut me from here down to here, just this big scar that I have. You're not supposed to do that to your body. Like that, that is invasive. And so I had this dread. I had dread of the knife. I had dread of the everything that happens. I'm not going to get too descriptive. I'm going to have people faint um, this morning. I don't want that to happen. But I also had this anticipation because this thing that was so awful and sore, I was longing for it to be removed. And when the surgery finally happened, I was so, so thankful, right? I actually woke up counting in a number of different languages after the <laughs> anesthetic. So, you know, I, I, I won't get into them now, but it was very weird, but I was so thankful. And I think that is kind of like the day of the Lord. We know that there's this, this awfulness, this, this side to God where he must judge what is right from what is wrong, what is good from what is evil. If he doesn't do it, who will? Not you and me. We'd be terrible at that. And so we need God to do it. And so there's a sense of dread around that, but there's also the sense of rejoicing knowing that the judge of all the earth will do what is right, that we can trust him with it to do what is right. And so in Joel, he introduces us to the day of the Lord by starting to describe a natural event that seems to have occurred. And I loved uh, this morning, um, uh, where's Terry? Terry read it in the, the Good News translation. And as he read it through, I think it opened up with saying, listen up, old people, um, which is great, great way to start a, a sermon or a text, right? And basically, Joel is saying, listen up. I got to ask you a question. Has anything like this natural disaster ever happened before in your lifetime? And the answer is No. So make sure you tell this to your children and your children's children, because this is going to be part of the lesson that's going to help us understand the day of the Lord. Now, as I was thinking about that um, early this morning, I realized that we're coming up to the 10-year anniversary of the floods in Calgary. Like, that's amazing to think about. And not that that was a day of the Lord kind of experience, but it was enough of a natural disaster that we realized just how devastating and disruptive something can be that's completely out of our control. It disrupted every aspect of people's lives. And, and that's the kind of thing that Joel starts with. Not a flood, but a plague of locusts. And as you read through, you realize these locusts are entirely hungry. <laughs> and devastating as they march through. And we've had locust plagues in our lifetime, certainly in North Africa and in India, and you can read all about them. And, and the thing is, they are unstoppable. There's nothing you can do. And they devour and destroy everything in their path. And it's this total destruction that Joel starts on. And he says, do you remember this? Nothing like it has happened before. 
It's terrifying and terrible. The devastation is complete. Social life is devastated, he says in verse 5. It disrupts the normal enjoyment of life. He says, wake up, you drunkards. There's no more wine. Boo-hoo. Like, there's no more partying. Your whole social life has been disruptive. There's, there's no more wine. These locusts have come through and eaten everything. Family life is devastated. There's this horrific image that was read for us of the bride, but she's not wearing her bride dress. She's not wearing the beautiful dress. She's, she's wearing a, a dark cloak of mourning. She's wearing sackcloth and ashes. Why? Because she didn't even get a chance to get married. Her groom has died, and she'll never have that. The whole potential for their life together is gone, Joel says. That's the devastation of the locusts. It's affected family life. Worship life is devastated. The priests, when they come to the temple, they've got nothing to offer. There's nothing to bring. All the grain is gone. All the animals are devastated. Whole worship life, religious life is completely disrupted. And natural life is disrupted. You read in verse 10 about the farmers. They've got nothing to farm. There's no crops. There's no animals. The earth has been harmed by this devastation. That's what Joel is talking about. This devastation has completely affected every single aspect of their life. It's complete. But this is the reason he tells us about that. Because he says, and this is kind of horrific, he says, that was just a warm-up for the true day of the Lord. You think that was bad? And it was. It was terrifying and terrible and all-encompassing. The day of the Lord... It's going to be worse. Wow. And Joel is essentially saying, make sure you're ready and make sure you're on the right side of the day of the Lord when it comes. Well, there's a twist in all of this because that whole imagery of the locusts and the day of the Lord, normally that's, that's against the nations. That's against the Gentiles, as Matt was saying, right? That's, that's against Egypt. The locusts were a plague in Egypt. And God's people were okay with that. I mean, as long as it devastates those other people, the Gentile people, the God's enemies, that's fine. But the twist is this. Those locusts and the day of the Lord is coming for God's people. And that's meant to be a wake-up call. Shake them awake. Priests, start to repent. Leaders of the community, wake up and pay attention. The day of the Lord is coming and it's coming for you. I'm not saying you, so don't. <laughs> How are we doing with the judgment of God so far? Not warming up to it very much? Um, not loving the judgment of God? Okay, here's the turning point in the sermon. This is the interesting thing to me. When we talk about the day of the Lord, the Hebrew day doesn't begin as our day begins, right? We usually talk about the day beginning with sunrise. Um, not in our clocks, but in our reality. But the Jewish day always begins at nightfall. As soon as you can see three stars in the sky, that's when the next day begins. So the Jewish day always starts dark. And I think the day of the Lord always starts dark. It always starts with a sense of dread, a sense of darkness. It begins at nightfall. But as the day progresses on, it moves from darkness and dread to salvation and light. And that's also part of the day of the Lord that we find in Joel and everywhere else. 
In fact, uh, the day of the Lord event also happens at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. When you read about the cross, you read about, you know, stuff happening in the heavens and earthquaking and the sun going dark. These are all images associated with day of the Lord kind of language. Judgment was met in that sense at the cross. That's why for you and me, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of Jesus meeting that sense of judgment, taking the judgment at the cross. And so the day of the Lord language comes at the cross. But it doesn't stay dark, does it? It moves toward light because it moves toward the resurrection. And that's all part of the day of the Lord. So there's this dread, but there's also rejoicing. There's judgment, but there is also salvation. And that's what we always have to hold on to when we have these conversations. Remember one Easter in our church plant, we uh, had an artist. We had a number of artists, visual artists. And I asked her to come and paint a painting while I was preaching. And so I had to make my sermon extra long just, you know, to allow her to do her painting. That's my excuse anyway. And she came up and it was Easter. And so we wanted to paint uh, the picture or a representation of that passage that says, in the early morning, while it was still dark, the ladies got the spices together and moved toward the tomb. But as they moved toward the tomb, the sun comes up and the light shines. The darkness is dispelled and there's the glory of the resurrection. And she did an amazing job of darkness to light. I wish I still had a picture I could show you. Everybody was captivated by the artist. Didn't hear a word I said, but it was enough. This visual art was so just outstanding that it captured that darkness to light. And that's what the Jewish day moves from darkness to light. And I believe the day of the Lord moves from darkness to light. Well, in Joel, who should be concerned about the day of the Lord? Who needs to be concerned? Who needs to kind of wake up and pay attention? It's not just uh, the people of God who once were oppressed, but now had actually become the oppressors but it was also the nations. But here's some of the reasons. And I think when you hear the reasons, you'll go, oh, that's why God is upset. Here's one of the reasons in Joel chapter three. Beware of those nations who oppress other nations. And if you've ever felt watching the news, or even thinking about maybe the history of Canada or North America, and you think, how can it be that some nations oppress other nations with such impunity, and it stirs up a bit of anger in you, you need to know that it also grieves God's heart when nations oppress nations, right? Here's another thing listed in Joel 3 about why the day of the Lord needed to come. It was against those who promote and perpetuate slavery. So if you ever think about those people who have been displaced from their homeland, never to return, and you feel something of, of an anxiety and an anger and a frustration and a futility in that, you, you need to know that God is also grieved at the displacement of people from their homeland. Good news that we have, we've been uh, sponsoring slowly and watching uh, two sisters who came uh, from Syria and are currently in Lebanon. And we just got news this week that their visas have been approved and they're going to be able to come to us. 
And this has been a project that's been going on for a couple of years. And maybe we've even forgotten about it because it was so stalled. But these uh, two sisters, they had to leave Syria because everything was lost. It was dev they were devastated. And in Lebanon, they have no status. They're literally displaced people. Not allowed to work. They're not allowed to go to school. They're not allowed to vote. They're not allowed to even own property. Nothing. And so the fact that they're going to be able to come and join us here, some of their family live in Queensland, uh, is wonderful news, right? But when we hear these stories and we feel this, this angst over it, we need to know that God is also grieved. Here's another reason why the day of the Lord need to come. Uh, against people who engaged in human sex trafficking. This is what Joel 3 actually says. There's people that traded boys for prostitutes and girls for wine. And God said, I'm angry about that. Are you? You should be. We should be. Uh, human trafficking, sex trafficking is happening in our city. It happens here. And so when we feel that sense of sort of anger and frustration, but futility, how do we deal with this? So even while we work toward justice, we also know that ultimately the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And then Joel 3 says, it's coming against those who disrespect and desecrate holy things and places. There's been a profaning of the world around us. And unfortunately, we've lost the sense of the holy in many, many aspects of our society and culture. And if that grieves us, know also that it grieves God and it stirs God up. So all of these things, when we start to understand that God's judgment isn't just random, he's not just looking for vengeance, he's not just out for blood. He's actually concerned about those who are vulnerable and oppressed, primarily. And when he stirs up, when he rises up, when he comes for a visit in judgment, it's often because of those things. God shows up to set things right. So Joel speaks of the day of the Lord in the past, but he also points us to a future. And that prophecy brings us to the day of the Lord that I mentioned that happens at the cross. It also happens at Pentecost, but it also points us ahead, even into the book of Revelation, where we understand that there's a coming day of reckoning when God will make things right through the return of his Son. But even as we talk about that and we look carefully at the book of Revelation, we realize that God's judgment and his justice might not be what we expect. We're still calling out for vengeance sometimes. We're still, still calling out for retribution. But when it talks about Jesus coming in Revelation, at first it says, he looked to see the lion from Judah, and what did he see? The lamb who was slain. Even Jesus, when he comes on the horse, at first he's described as coming with his sword as a sort of conqueror to bring justice. But then you realize that he's already been bloodied and the sword's coming from his mouth, speaking the truth of his word. In other words, the judgment of God comes through sacrifice, comes through the sacrifice of Jesus. Victory comes through sacrifice and mercy and his love which might be disappointing to some of us at some times. But that's the way God seems to operate. So even today as we work for justice, even today as we lament the unfair things in our society and our world systems, I believe today we can look forward with confidence that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. We can have confidence in the judgment of God. 
That's why I love the judgment of God, because I can have confidence that he'll do it right, because I sure won't. Well, how do we respond to all this? I want to invite us to respond um, by reading from 2 Peter chapter 2. And I think this is how we're meant to respond to this language of the day of the Lord. This is from the message, message translation. Don't overlook the obvious, friends. With God, one day is as good as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. God isn't late with his promise as some measure lateness. He's restraining himself on account of you, holding back the end because he doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone space and time to change. But when the day of God's judgment does come, it'll be unannounced like a thief. The sky will collapse with a thunderous bang and everything disintegrating and raging inferno, earth and all its works exposed to the scrutiny of judgment. Since everything here today might well be gone tomorrow, do you see how essential it is to live a holy life? Daily expect the day of God, eager for its arrival. The galaxies will burn up and the elements melt down that day, but we'll hardly notice. We'll be looking the other way, ready for the promised new heavens and the promised new earth, all landscaped with righteousness. So, my dear friends, since this is what you have to look forward to, do your very best to be found living in purity and peace. Let's pray together. Father, we admit to you today that there's times in our own hearts that we have uh, wanted vengeance or some kind of retribution, whether it's a, a personal vendetta or when we see things happening in the world around us. And yet we're encouraged by you to leave room for your judgment because you'll do it the right way. So, Father, help us to gain confidence. Help us to have that sense of peace, even in the midst of the disruption of the world around us, knowing that the judge of all the earth will do what is right, and we can trust you, even with our very lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.